Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck. On today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Jenny Hughes. And Jenny is a licensed clinical psychologist and founder of Brave Providers, an organization created to help trauma therapists overcome vicarious trauma together. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Of course. I really enjoyed our first conversation. I felt um, a pretty immediate connection to you and your story, having gone through my own very traumatic experiences after living what I would refer to as like a relatively tame life. And then thinking fairly frequently about what is it like for my therapist when I'm going in there and being like, my life's falling apart. Here's all this insane shit that's happening. Please help. <laughs> um, and, you know, you hope that when you walk away that the person that you're sharing all of that with is able to manage their lives in a healthy way. So yeah. I really applaud what you're doing and why you're doing it. It certainly hits close to home, despite the fact that I'm on the other side of it. <laughs> Well, and I think that a lot of clients have those similar questions and they've asked me that directly too. Like, how do you do this work every day? You know, it's more that they don't specifically ask, like, how do you take care of yourself? But that's what they're, they're wanting to make sure. Right. Because clients care about their therapists. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think it was a podcast I had probably been listening to with Lori Gottlieb who wrote, maybe you should talk to someone. I assume you've probably heard of it. Mm -hmm. And She in like one of the early parts of her book, she makes a point about how the dynamic with a client and a therapist is so complicated because it's like you get to know somebody very well as a therapist and the client has really not a lot of information about you as a therapist, but you somehow forge this really strong, if you have a good relationship, right? Mm -hmm. You can forge a very strong connection and it's predicated on the fact that you as an individual who's sharing feel very safe with this person. And so even though you might not know the details of their everyday life, you do feel like you know them somewhat as a person because they're responding to you and they're giving you that feedback and they're sharing with you the space and the psychological safety that you need to be able to work through your things. So you get a sense of who this person must be, but Mm -hmm. you still probably have like very limited amounts of information about (laughs) like, you know, what do they do in their spare time? How do they enjoy to spend their weekends? You know? Right. And and I think it's really kind of a fascinating um, dynamic when you consider how that is such a powerful space to be held for, for both of those people. And I, think what's really admirable about what you're doing with Brave Providers is that you're really putting a spotlight on the people who are in the position of the provider and saying, hey, we're people too. And it's not that, you know, the people that you're working with don't understand that. But I think as you mentioned in our intro call, collectively, there's trauma that is being incurred by the providers and it's not talked about and it's not really a space where people can 
explore that and feel comfortable really establishing a community around it, which is what you're trying to do. So can you share a little bit about how you began thinking about the concept of brave providers and then kind of ultimately executing on that? Yeah, well, and like you're describing, so the therapeutic relationship, there is such a deep intimacy there. And I intentionally use that word because even though it is sort of imbalanced in terms of how much, you know, each knows about each other, it's one of those spaces where, you know, the client, the patient, whatever word you want to use, they do receive that space and that support and unconditional positive regard, hopefully, um, to be able to share things. And then the therapist receives that and yeah. receives that ideally with, you know, openness and without judgment. Um, and then also the therapist is working to sort of translate that for the client to perhaps give it back to them with a different perspective or with some skills or tools built in, or when you're doing trauma work to really examine these traumatic events that have happened in one's life. And so there's this incredible amount of intimacy and deep connection. And so the therapists are are doing so much work. They're holding so much. And they're also, there are a lot of unspoken expectations that they're just supposed to be fine. Like, oh, you're a therapist. You must have it all together. (laughs) Totally. It's interesting too, something that you just said um, about like the intimacy really rings true to me. I've been seeing my therapist for, I think maybe a little over four years now. I remember when I began this feeling of hesitation, not because of her, um, because of me and getting to a place where like, I needed to be able to feel comfortable to share. And it was almost like the more the traumatic events in my life were unfolding, the less I gave a shit about mm-hmm. yep. how how like uncomfortable it was to talk about. Because you're like, oh, like I literally just can't hold on to this anymore. It just needs to go somewhere. And so I began really anticipating and looking forward to those sessions to be able to feel a sense of release in a place where I knew I was safe and that I knew someone was there to try to help me through it. And so um, thank you for letting me interject. I just, I feel like it's so relevant in that sense of you can't always, you know, anticipate sort of where a conversation is going to go or what somebody's going to need from you. And at the same point in time, like you are in those moments as a provider yeah. Responding in real time to whatever thing is happening for the person sitting across from you. And so it's very easy to sort of, as a society, overlook that because it is your role. It's like you don't think, I mean, I'm sure people do think this, but it's like consider a firefighter and you're like, oh my gosh, they're jumping into that burning building and they're not <laughs> thinking twice about it. Right. Yeah. And you're like the human to human firefighter. It's like somebody <laughs> needs to put that out. Let's do it. Um, but then you walk out of it and you're like, okay, like now I need to respond to the experience that I had. Right. Exactly. And it's such, I mean, it truly is an honor and a privilege to be able to bear witness to all of the work that my clients do. There's nothing more that fills my cup than being able to share compassion and empathy with them. And when I, when other providers don't have opportunities to sit with the work that we do, to be able to reflect on it and 
to have a variety of ways to take care of ourselves. Even though we love being able to give back and help people, there's going to be little holes that are poked in that cup. So no matter how much we put into it, it never kind of is able to hold that energy that we need to sustain the work. And so that's why I created Brave Providers was because Um, I think it is so, so important for not just people who are helpers and healers to talk about things like vicarious trauma, but also to let other people know and remind them that therapists and helpers and healers are people too, and that it's okay to talk about the ways that um, therapists and helpers and healers may also struggle, not just with their work, but like they have real life shit too. Like during COVID, my dad died of COVID at the beginning of the pandemic. And so like, we are all going through this crazy fucking experience. Right. And I took a week off. I, I should have took it, taken more time off, but I didn't, whatever. Um, and so it's like, we also have our own experiences in the background that sometimes are directly in parallel with the work that we're doing with our clients. And that's a, a very obvious and kind of extreme example and very unique, but we have our own stuff going on in the background all the time. And when we don't have the permission to be able to talk about that and to be able to say, oh, wait, I deserve to be cared for too, then that's when we head down this trajectory towards burnout. And then people leave the field, not because they are choosing to, not because they're making an informed choice to make a pivot in their life, but because it's like, it's their only life raft, right? They're jumping ship and it's the only way that they can see to save themselves. And I don't want people to feel like that is their only choice. That's such a beautiful way of saying it too, Jenny. Thank you. To bring it back to what you had said about losing your father at the beginning of COVID to COVID, nonetheless, I think like the amount of empathy that I have for people who have lost parents now that I've lost a parent is so profoundly different. It's not that like I haven't always felt that, but I remember reading something right after my mom passed away about how you've just become a member of a club that nobody wants to be a part of. The intensity of that type of loss is, I think, pretty unparalleled. And so to try to continue just going about your life um, because you need to, because you either have to work or you have kids or you have other priorities that like still need to happen. It's very difficult to co-manage those things amidst that type of grief. And so layer into that, the fact that it was the start of COVID and the collective awareness of people that mental health is super important (laughs) was really, I feel like at an all-time high and looking at how people were seeking to find somebody that they could talk to. There's the fact that there aren't probably enough mental health care providers, period. But then there's also the fact that not everybody is seeking the same type of care or requires the same type of care. So now you're also like whittling down the pool of um, viable options because (laughs) maybe the people who have availability aren't the people who can best help you. And I'm curious from your perspective, did you see an uptick in people reaching out, trying to find therapists and and looking for appointments during COVID? 
So yes. So uh, with an asterisk, because my dad died in April 2020. So like okay. it, no one even was like had totally figured out how to totally. switch online. Yeah, yeah. It was this weird, like ginormous dip. And mm-hmm. then it was a, like just hit the gas, like pedal to the metal. And then like way above baseline in terms of the amount of people that were seeking support. Yeah. So yes, but not everyone had even figured out how to like log into a Zoom call, you know, <laughs> let alone insurance providers and whatever else goes into all of the healthcare stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's a really fair point. That's totally something that I hadn't considered. Um, it makes obvious logical sense, but <laughs> you don't think about that transition period where everybody's scrambling going, well, what the hell do we do? You know, we also were like, oh, this will be over in like two weeks. You know, oh, I get two weeks off to like clean my house. We had just bought our house and hadn't had time. Well, we had bought our house in December 2019, but really hadn't unpacked. Yeah. And so I was like awesome we're gonna get moved in like everything's gonna get set up and then we'll go back to life yeah totally totally (laughs) and you're like jokes on us we did get unpacked and moved in so well there you go see like at least you had the opportunity to cross it off the list exactly (laughs) that being said did you find that you had people reaching out to you that weren't necessarily like you wouldn't be the best fit for them and you had to um respectfully decline and also Did you find that you just, you reached a point where you were like, I have to draw the line in the sand. I just can't keep taking things on. Yeah. I mean, I think both of those, yes to both of those things. So um, in my practice, I have a private practice and I also work for an organization. And so I have more kind of control over my private practice than I do in the organization where I work, just because Mm -hmm. that's how it works. And so especially, um, and the larger part of my time is with this organization, and I'm able to see people who accept insurance through this part of my work, which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. And also, so it increases accessibility, but also means that I'm not always the great fit for everyone, right? The, the therapeutic relationship is so unique and intimate that that match between the therapist and the client is super important. I mean, the most healing part of therapy is the relationship. And so I think both the therapist and the client feel it when it's not the right fit. And sometimes it can be hard to talk about, but at that time in COVID, there was just such a great need that like, I think everyone was just sort of doing whatever they could to get anyone matched up with a therapist. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was wanting to help as much as I could as well. And so it's not that I didn't do good work with folks who weren't a good fit for me. Um, but it was just maybe a different kind of work that we were doing. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective, Jenny. Thank you for sharing that. I think in particular, it speaks a lot to the dedication of somebody in your type of position. And in particular, you know, how that is a very important decision to to make both for you and for somebody who's coming to see you. And I remember when I first started seeing my therapist, we met in person and clearly I'm a talker. So um, I came away from it being like, maybe I need to think about, you know, seeing somebody else because I I don't know that I'm going to get the type of engagement that I'm looking for. Granted, I left like zero room to talk. So that was on me too. (laughs) But um, I decided instead of just being like, no, I don't think this is right for me to bring it up in the next session and say, hey, you know, I felt 
a little like I just kept rambling and I'm the type of person that will keep rambling. So I want to make sure that I'm speaking to somebody and, and working with somebody who is is okay with like raising the flag and like, pause, you in. Yeah, pause for a second and come <laughs> back to that. And the thing is, is that conversation, I feel like really changed the trajectory of mm-hmm. our dynamic very quickly and pointed us in a direction where this is the same person that I've been seeing for four years. And in the experiences that we've shared because of how close we've become in that relationship and how much I've shared and how much support that I've gotten from her, it's become so clear to me like how instrumental that conversation at the onset was. And so when I see people who might be averse to going to therapy, the people who don't, a lot of times like, well, I tried and I didn't like it. And it just wasn't for me. And it's like, okay, I do believe that sometimes that might be the case. Mm -hmm. I also feel very strongly that a lot of people don't do enough research to figure out what they need from a therapist to be able to have that relationship be effective and the right one for you. From your standpoint, when it comes to those initial meetings and being able to understand, like, can you provide the care, the best care that you want to be able to knowing what you know about somebody? And obviously, learning more as you're going and you're essentially seeing the evolution of somebody's story and and obviously their growth as you're going through it. Do you feel like there have been points in times where because of what you're learning as you're going, you're finding that maybe now you're not the best fit for somebody or they might need something that you can't provide? Yeah. So I'll answer your question, but I first want to talk about a couple of things just kind of in response to you sharing your story and what it was like to bring that up with your therapist. I think that was incredibly brave of you to do that because Mm -hmm. there are clear power dynamics in a therapeutic relationship, right? You're coming to this person, they may have like a PhD or something after their name, you're supposed to call them doctor, right? And it a lot of people do not receive the education and the advocacy that they need to know so that they can actually ask for things. And, you know, some of the kind of technical terms is like health literacy, like they don't have a high level of health literacy or mental health literacy, largely because of the still the stigma around mental health. We don't talk about what it's like to be in therapy and what it's like to look for a therapist. Being able to bring up that question, I think it speaks to the power dynamics and privilege and stuff too, right? Like there's a lot of people who don't feel like they are allowed to, even if they want to. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they don't know how to look for a therapist, they may also not have like the resources to really even begin that search. And so that's why outreach efforts are so important and why so many therapists and agencies will do outreach like that. But that's just like getting people aware of the service. It's not what we're talking about here of, okay, so then how do you have these conversations with someone once you've had an appointment? And so I'm so glad that we're having this and that people are going to be able to hear like, oh yeah, you can actually ask your therapist or tell them like, this is what I need. This is what is going to be most helpful for me. Can you do that? And I want people to know that asking those things is not rude. (laughs) It is totally appropriate. It's not going to offend your therapist. Um, and it's in your best interest. And if they respond honestly, and they cannot meet one of those needs, then they can be your greatest advocate to find someone who can. 
I really love that. Thank you for saying that. And I'm glad that whatever rambling I was doing led to, <laughs> to you <laughs> being able to show that because I think that that's so important also to acknowledge that I, I myself am privileged to be able to say, I knew that there were places that I could go to find information that I wanted. I knew what I was trying to understand. So I was educating myself as I was going through the process of trying to find somebody to talk to. And then ultimately feeling to your point, like a sense of enough self-awareness for me and enough, um, you know, consideration for the relationship itself to be able to say, I, I want this to be right for everybody involved too. Maybe that sounds a little weird to say it that way, but I think that, you know, it's just being cognizant of if you're opening up to somebody and they don't feel like they can provide that for you, mm -hmm. then there is that accountability on ourselves to call it like we see it and try to figure out if that's a perception or if that's reality. Well, and the therapist has some responsibility here too. So when the therapist notices that maybe things aren't quite right, I've actually had a couple of these conversations just in the past couple of weeks and you can just feel it, right? You can just feel like tension or awkwardness or like just something's not quite right. I think it's super important for therapists to own their responsibility there to bring it up because, mm -hmm. and especially because of the power dynamics, the therapist is in a position of power and they have to remember that most clients don't know that they can bring this stuff up or know how to bring it up. And therapy is a little microcosm of like testing things out in relationships in a safe space so that maybe hopefully they can be generalized in the person's life outside of 50 minutes a week. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but the therapist isn't always going to know that, right? And there are lots of folks who, I'm just going to take you for example, I have no idea, but you're very personable. You like to talk. You could just kind of go on and on and just sort of like fill the space. And the therapist might be like, okay, cool. We're done. So it's a give and take. It is a give and take. And so it's about like educating people. You are allowed to ask for your needs to be met in therapy and also reminding therapists, don't forget the position of power that you are in. Yeah. I appreciate that. And I'm pretty much spot on. One of the things that I value so much about um, my therapist is that there will be moments where I really try to zip past the thing that I definitely need to talk about. And she's like, mm, well, we're going to come back to that. And like, right. that's why we're still together. You know? <laughs> you know, so one of the things that I think, because I really want to make sure we're bringing it back to you and your story. Um, so thank you for um, giving me the space to share my experience. The thing that you and I had spoken about originally was sort of how you'd gotten to a place in your own career where you felt that burnout starting, where you could really just understand within yourself that there was a limitation around how much you could do because of what you were taking on and not really having anywhere to go with that. And you had mentioned the obvious privacy protections for people and that you can only share a limited amount of information, but there's also just who do you talk to about it? So can you share a little bit about how you started cultivating this community of people to be able to support one another? Yeah. So one of the greatest protective factors against vicarious trauma turning into burnout and other things is 
community and being able to talk to fellow colleagues. And so when you think about helpers and healers as an umbrella, like me talking to a like a police officer is not going to be as beneficial to them as it is talking to a fellow police officer, right? And so even within mental health, I'm a trauma psychologist. Like all I do is trauma work and I love doing trauma work and it feels very fulfilling for me and I feel very effective there and that is protective. But it, like you said, you know, HIPAA aside, not many people sign up to do trauma work, even like not a lot of therapists necessarily sign up to do that. And certainly my loved ones didn't. (laughs) And so it's not fair for me to be like, Hey, let me tell you about all the trauma I listened to today, (laughs) because that's just mean and traumatizing, frankly. And also like it, it doesn't, it would be like me talking to a police officer and trying to just like shoot the shit about our jobs. And so I think it's really important to create spaces where helpers and healers of certain specialties can come together to support each other. And so I I have done a lot of work supporting other healthcare providers around vicarious trauma. I helped like develop a wellness program and a hospital and all of this. And I love being able to work with other healthcare providers. But I noticed that especially during the pandemic, there were not a lot of resources for therapists to be able to get that support in a community that's protected and for them. And so that's why with Brave Providers, I first am creating and have created the Brave Trauma Therapist Collective. And so it's a community of trauma therapists. And that that definition is a very loose definition. Therapists get to self-identify if they're working with trauma or not. But it's a space where we all know that we do trauma work. We all know that we don't have to sugarcoat the kind of stuff that we need to talk about amongst each other. And also where we learn and and grow um, together. You know, I may be leading it and sharing education and content, but there's so much co-learning that goes along with it because we're all in this space and having these experiences together. And so having that community is super protective because when we don't have spaces to be able to talk about it, that is when like we just start to kind of rabbit hole and ruminate and get stuck in the work that we're doing. You know, something that you said that I'm really curious about is the statement around self-identifying as a trauma therapist or Mm -hmm. specialist. So is there any sort of credential that separates trauma therapy from other therapy specifically? There's really not. Ideally, someone who's doing trauma work with folks is trained in evidence-based treatment. So EMDR, cognitive processing therapy, somatic experiencing, Mm -hmm. but there's no like credential or like, you know, alphabet letters behind someone's name necessarily. It really is more about their training and their experience. But it's important to talk about that because when you go on psychology today and look for a therapist, therapists can click a lot of different boxes about the kinds of work. Yes, they can. I learned that factually. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it's important to acknowledge that all therapists are working with stress and trauma. Like no matter what, therapists are working with people who are are in pain and who need and deserve help. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's important to acknowledge that, but also someone who is a trauma specialist 
is someone who is trained in specific treatments that we know work for PTSD because there are treatments that truly work and help people to be able to recover from the devastating effects of trauma. Mm -hmm. But when people are not receiving those kinds of treatments, they're not going to experience the same kind of recovery that's possible. Right. I really appreciate that response. Part of this for me being educational is really helpful. So thank you for um, so (laughs) clearly laying it out for me and for listeners, because I think these are the things too, that like we don't often consider, right? Like I've gone to psychology today. I know what, you know, filters I'm going to put in there and what I'm looking for. And it's like, okay, but does that person actually do those things or can they yeah. actually help me with those things? I don't necessarily know. And so you are kind and of, why rel- wouldn't you believe that, right? Like they put it on there. Why wouldn't you believe that that's true? hundred percent. Because yeah. if there's anybody that you want to be able to trust, you kind of want it to be your mental health care providers yeah. or really any healthcare providers. Honestly, yeah. you want to feel like you are not only in a safe space, but that there's somebody that you can trust in that safe space. And so the community that you've created um, with the collective that you mentioned, what is the cadence of being able to meet with people or what types of things are you able to share with one another that keeps obviously the important things private, but gives you the ability to share more outwardly about what it is that you're experiencing and how you're creating value for each other in that scenario? Yeah. So right now we have two monthly Zoom calls that one of them, the first is kind of more focused on um, whatever the educational content is for that month. That serves as an anchor for that call, but certainly whatever people need to talk about is fair game. The second one is our consultation call. And that one is where we are able to really talk about cases and to ask questions from a diverse group of people who do trauma work. I mean, just recently, just yesterday in our call, one of the questions was about dissociation and working even better, more effectively with dissociation with clients. And it was so cool to hear, you know, so many different responses and so much support for the therapist who asked the question. And they left feeling so just, just like short up, Right. Like knowing that they have these people who they can turn to with these questions and also knowing that they can bring up really difficult clinical stuff without having to worry about hurting any of us because we're all sharing and carrying this load together. And we have skills and we have structure around taking care of ourselves in those moments when we're talking about trauma work and outside of it, when we are maybe we're just in our asynchronous community and we're just kind of chatting there too. And so it's really like, I'm trying to make it a a diverse set of interactions and supports and skills so that people know it's not just about uh, one of the greatest questions that people ask me before they join is, isn't this just going to be re-traumatizing to like be with a bunch of trauma therapists and talk about trauma work? And I'm like, I mean, fair question. That's a really good one. But if we don't talk about it, it just festers and then we burn out so well you know it's interesting too because it it coming from a group of people who are working with other people being like you can't repress it if you repress it it it's worse (laughs) and it's like but can we just repress it so that we don't have to let it go there no and so it's kind of funny to see that shift in perspective because there's the mentality of as a practitioner this is what we do and this is how we 
help people evolve in their own journeys. And then it's like, this is what we do. And this is what I know we should do, but I don't want to, you know? <laughs> like- well, and a lot of the, I don't want to is fears around like worth and abilities. Like I'm not cut out for this work. If I need support, I'm not strong enough to be a trauma therapist. And those are messages that are passed down within our fields of you just need to buck up and you just need to deal with it. Like, don't cry about it. You just, this is how it is. You know, and so we are working to overcome those messages that we have so deeply internalized, even though we can talk the talk all day long. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that you shared that because that offers me such a great perspective and listeners as well. I'm being a little selfish in that statement if I just (laughs) say me. Um, But but personally, I really appreciate that because it highlights something that a lot of people, if we are not in that field, do not understand. Like we will Mm -hmm. not hear that unless somebody is listening to this episode or they are part of that community of people who are dealing with this, they are completely unaware of that sort of set of expectations and that, like you said, just kind of like buck up and get it done. And it really brings to mind like other occupations where trauma is very prevalent. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, police officers, firefighters, military veterans of any kind, really, right? Like people who are first responders in any capacity, you are acquiring trauma in those moments where you're doing your job. And I sit here and I sit behind a desk and I, you know, tell people to get things done certain ways. And I (laughs) click my keyboard and it's like, having a bad day at work for me is really different. You know, it's like (laughs) something annoying happened today and I'm not happy about it or I'm frustrated, but it's more often than not, it's not something that is hitting me at that like core human level that changes really your ability to function effectively. And you had mentioned going into your own survival mode and the challenge of shifting gears and being able to both manage your own expectations for yourself professionally, but also be able to express and manage your feelings as a result of the day-to-day conversations that you're having and trying not to be withholding of that. So you've created this group where people are able to share and express that, but what would you say is really like the most important thing for somebody who is in in a trauma therapy role who is feeling isolated and maybe doesn't know about your group or doesn't have a community of people that they can go to? Like, what do you feel is an important first step to be able to start to really turn the mirror on yourself and start to help yourself through those moments? I think the most important first step is to be able to name what is going on and to name the vicarious trauma, compassion, fatigue, whatever it might be. And just like you're saying, you know, when we go into our own survival modes, we can, I mean, I think healthcare providers especially are really good at compartmentalizing. And so especially like that means we can show up and work. That's probably the last place that something like vicarious trauma and burnout is really going to obviously show up, but outside of work, things are going to be falling apart more quickly. Mm -hmm. And 
by naming vicarious trauma, it, it can be really scary to do that because you have to also say like, okay, I am really struggling with feeling irritable, with feeling distracted, with not being able to focus and, and always kind of thinking about my work or, or my clients, or even maybe having, you know, kind of intrusive thoughts or images about some of the work that I'm doing. And it can be scary to really name and own that for ourselves because then we do have to say that we are struggling, that we are not getting the support that we deserve, that we're not um, able to take care of ourselves in the way that we wish that we could. And so naming it, just like for clients, receiving a diagnosis can be really empowering for a lot of people because they're finally like, oh shit, that's what's been going on. Like it all makes sense now. And like vicarious trauma, then none of those are are diagnoses and they should never be. It's not about pathologizing. It's about naming our experiences as helpers and healers so that once we can see kind of how things are showing up in any given moment, we can have a little bit more clarity about what we need. So if we're feeling more emotional effects of like isolated and withdrawn and really down, then that can tell us that maybe it's helpful for us to connect more with other people, whether they're colleagues or not. If we're noticing a lot of like physical stuff, like lots of headaches, stomach aches, sleep disturbances, we can start to make tweaks in our life there. If we're doing, if we're avoiding work a lot, you know, or feeling like we need to kind of um, protect ourselves from certain certain kinds of experiences at work, perhaps, you know, if we work in an agency or organization, we ask for some support in some of those areas. Or if we work for ourselves in private practice, maybe we figured if we can get a VA to help to like keep our inbox manageable, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So if we don't have clarity, if we can't name VT, vicarious trauma, then we're not going to know what to do. And that what to do is a lot of different things, which can include certainly reaching out for community like in Brave, but it's really about going back to basics, that old wisdom that we all know that we quote unquote should do, (laughs) but we aren't always able to do that because we're just trying our best to get through each day. I mean, that resonates a lot. And I'm sure that that has to be one of the biggest challenges because you're in a position where the nature of your work is so personally impactful to the people that you're working with that I imagine it's probably hard to feel like you're in that place where you can't necessarily give people what they need because you're not giving yourself what you need and it makes me wonder we'd talked about in our um intro call a little bit around the opposite side of vicarious trauma vicarious resilience which I really loved that part of our conversation so I'd, I'd love to continue it a little bit here because on the flip side of feeling all of the intensity that comes with the trauma and the weight of that that you can carry, you had expressed that there is this really beautiful evolution that you can see in people that you're uh, working with. And curious if you're also seeing this, it sounds like you may be already a little bit with brave is when somebody kind of has that moment of clarity or that moment of that they're sensing that profound healing and that they see that the work that they're doing is really creating a meaningful change for them. Can you share a little bit about your experience with that and just overall how 
the vicarious trauma and vicarious resilience sort of balance each other. Totally. And we've talked, well, we haven't talked directly, but we've sort of touched on vicarious resilience a couple of times already today of talking about how sharing and expressing compassion can be really refueling for us, right? And how we know that people can get better from PTSD and trauma. And so vicarious resilience is this really unique experience that helpers and healers get to have when they are part of someone's recovery from anything. And when we're talking about trauma work, you know, working with someone and helping them to overcome the effects of their own traumatic experiences is such an incredible experience and vicarious resilience it doesn't just come at the end it's not you know the bow on top it is all those little moments that you were talking about along that journey of maybe the client coming and saying like i'm really scared to do trauma work today do we mm-hmm. have to and that meaning that we get to have that conversation right that's a moment of vicarious resilience yeah. of seeing clients really begin to internalize the work or the skills or or whatever it is we're doing and coming and telling me about how you know it's affecting their life their daily life in positive ways and then certainly when they graduate from therapy because the goal of therapy for especially for trauma is to get people out. It's a poor business model. Like we want to be done with that, right? (laughs) Because we know that it's treatable. And so certainly that is, I mean, such an incredible experience. But I think what I want is for people to be even more aware of vicarious resilience so that they can really benefit from those tiny little pieces along the way, because we get those those happen much more frequently than we realize. And so again, just like naming vicarious trauma helps us to see the pathway to what we need to heal. Naming vicarious resilience means that we're more open to noticing those warm fuzzies that we get when these amazing things happen in therapy. Absolutely. And I feel like, while it might not be the bow on top, um, it's sort of... (laughs) It's like the advent calendar of therapy. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not the Lexus with the bow that you didn't tell your partner you were buying, but <laughs> totally. Um, you know, and I feel like one of the things that's really powerful about what you're doing by creating this space for people is highlighting that humanity and all of it and being able, as you said, to name what it is that you're experiencing, because if we don't talk about it, it just sort of simmers under the surface until it can't anymore. And to be able to not only have created this opportunity out of what I think sounds like a bit of a necessity for yourself and an awareness of what was really lacking for you and those around you, but it's also, you know, it feels profoundly impactful for mental health care moving forward, a way for people to be able to, without hesitation, as a trauma therapist, be able to say, hey, I'm not okay right now. This is what I need. Or I'm starting to feel like that downward spiral is happening. How do I get to a place where I can pull myself far enough away from that spiral to be observant of it and to start to heal or manage those experiences. And I'm curious what you are hoping for with the future of Brave. I know that you've only recently started it. So 
not trying to jump too far into the future. I think there's a lot of opportunity here for you and for the people that are in your community and the people that you're working with. But when you began Brave, do you feel like there was sort of, this is what I wanted to ultimately achieve? Or do you feel like you're approaching this through the lens of the goal was to get it started? Let's see where it can go. A bit of both. So Certainly the initial goal was just to get it started. But, you know, one of kind of the immediate goals that I have is furthering the conversations about all of this stuff. So there's a psychologist, his name is Brian Miller, and he's developed an evidence-informed approach to working with folks around things like vicarious trauma and secondary traumatic stress. And he says this amazing thing in his book that intense experiences deserve to be shared. And he talks a lot about the healing power of narratives and both internally and externally. And so that's really kind of one of my current immediate goals is creating a space where the intense experiences along the spectrum of, you know, positive, negative, however you want to evaluate them, a place where they can be shared because they deserve to be shared and knowing that just sharing them is very healing in and of itself kind of larger goals is to be able to also have um, offerings for, you know, nurses, first responders, physicians, like lots of different kinds of helpers and healers. Because even though there's this umbrella term for people that do this kind of work, um, again, me, you know, maybe I can facilitate a community for police officers, but me like shooting the shit with a police officer <laughs> is not going to feel very healing for either of us. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting point too, because so one of my best friends is a nurse at the Children's Hospital Philadelphia and her husband's a state trooper. And I very often wonder about how much either of them share or want to share with each other or can like take on in sharing that yeah. with each other, because those are two like crazy traumatic roles to be in. Right. And to be able to offer each other the support that they need requires each of them to be able to hold space that mm -hmm. depending on what happened in their day may or may not be available. But one of the things that you had said that I want to come back to was around vicarious trauma. And did you say secondary trauma? Secondary traumatic stress. Can you explain what that is a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot of terms that get thrown out in this space and I have organized them in my head along sort of a continuum. I call it like the helper trauma response or the therapist trauma insert, whatever your role is trauma response. And it all starts with vicarious trauma. VT is inevitable if you are in a, a helping and healing profession, because just due to the work that we do, we engage empathically, we connect with people. And when you are an empathic person and you're expressing that, you act like a sponge to soak up stress and trauma. And so that's what causes vicarious trauma. Um, it's not a bad thing that VT is inevitable. It just means that it just is part of it. And we have to develop the skills and community to address that occupational hazard. When we don't have those resources, um, it can first start to turn into compassion fatigue. And this is when we just feel like I do not have anything left to give. I'm numb. I'm detached. I'm showing up to work, but like, I don't feel it. There's no openness to vicarious resilience because you just feel drained. You feel like your cup is empty. Mm -hmm. 
when that doesn't get addressed, it can turn into secondary traumatic stress. And secondary traumatic stress, it actually can happen to anyone. So VT and compassion fatigue are specific to helpers and healers because it's a, it's like an occupational hazard. Secondary traumatic stress can happen to anyone. And it's when you learn about something terrible that happened. So like most recently for me with the Uvalde school shooting last year, um, my stepdaughter is the same age as the kids. We live in Texas. Like it felt, it hit super close to home and was really distressing for me. And it actually jump started brave of like, I had some things that I was preparing to do, but I was like, fuck this shit. I need to like connect with people around this because this is just so intense, but it was totally a trauma response because I felt out of control. I felt under threat. I was hypervigilant, hyper arousal, like all the things. And so secondary traumatic stress um, looks a lot like PTSD and it can happen to anyone. And when we're talking about this helper healer trauma response, Vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue can turn into secondary traumatic stress where the signs of that are like nightmares about your work, like flashbacks or intrusive images of your work. So it's PTSD, but it's specific to the kind of work that you do. Okay. And then if that doesn't get addressed, then we hit burnout and we jump ship into that lifeboat. Thank you so much for explaining that. You had mentioned um, intrusive thoughts and that feeling of just picturing it. And this speaks a lot to my own experience with the PTSD that I've dealt with and what I'm realizing potentially in retrospect would be considered technically secondary traumatic stress. It would be far too um, much to attempt to explain how this all came to be. So (laughs) suffice to say that those feelings that you just described with um, how you felt about the Uvalde shooting, the hypervigilance, the feeling under threat, that like intensity of it did not happen to you, but you are extremely aware that it could, or you are now in a state of heightened awareness that this has happened and the empathy and the struggle of knowing that. And for me, being a very visual person, visualizing things like when I'm being told about something that's happened or when I'm witness to something that's happened, it's like that is so, so impactful in a way that is also very debilitating if you don't understand what's happening or you can't express what's happening in a way that can facilitate a conversation that will help you work through it. And so thankfully I was in therapy at the time. So I was able to just sort of be like, this really fucked up thing happened. I need to to talk about it now. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but it was this evolution of sort of that realization that these things did not happen to me, but I'm feeling this extremely deeply. Now to give just like a very brief summary is like my ex had told me that there were sexual assaults in her past. I believe that that is the case, though there were other things that happened that I do not believe were true. So there's a weird line there at this point. Um, But, you know, then also knowing that other friends of mine, people who I love so dearly, have also been sexually assaulted. It just became this really overwhelming, intense sort of growth of that trauma within me, feeling like that lack of control maybe, but like the 
helplessness that comes with Mm. that feeling of the threat and knowing that you can't retroactively stop those things from happening. And you know that like anything's possible now. So what if something could happen in the future? And so you're like kind of in this weird limbo of I can't help them because those things already happened and I can't stop the inevitable from happening. So what the hell do I do? When you were speaking to that, it's like, God, those feelings just sort of come rushing back because you're in this place of emotional uncertainty is probably the best way I could describe it. Yeah. And so how could somebody sort of help themselves or get help that they need for managing that? Honestly, it, it comes back to naming it. And just like you said with your own therapist of being able to talk about it and to name what was going on and to, to have a better understanding of what was bringing up those feelings and those intrusive thoughts and images so that you could then learn what is going to help you. Right. And so that next piece is going to be very individualized for every person. But being able to talk about it and name this stuff is the absolute first thing that we have to do. That is the opening of the door to whatever the healing looks like for anyone. I feel like that's a really great response and an awesome way to sort of round out the episode because when I started going to therapy, It was because one of my best friends had been going for quite a bit and she was talking to me about her own experience and about how her therapist had told her that she needed to name it. And I was like, (laughs) what the fuck does that even mean? You know, like, what does that even mean? And I was very skeptical and I was the one who was sort of like, I'm a curious person by nature. So we were having the conversations as somebody, I value their opinion in every aspect that they are willing to share with me. So I was open-minded about it. And I think once I got past my own skepticism, it became so clear to me how valuable that Mm -hmm. statement is to name it because so much of what we do in repressing those feelings is like, I don't want to address it. If I don't name it, then I'm not forced to like fully acknowledge it. And so I can just kind of skate by being like, whatever it's fine and it's like because you're not naming it because you're not focusing enough on it you're distracting yourself just enough from it that it's not full blown out of control perhaps but like you're also not addressing the issue and that's going to keep coming back and the analogy that I give is like you know you can keep shoving stuff under the bed to make your room look clean but eventually it's going to start coming out and it doesn't matter like it's just going to be there and you're going to have to do something about it so I think that you know, it's it's really powerful, Jenny, to hear you speak about what you're doing and what you're hoping to achieve with Brave. I'm so honored and humbled to have been able to share this conversation with you. This has been so insightful for me and also just the ease with which you speak about these things and the confidence and understanding because it is also your own experience, I feel is really impactful and hopefully, you know, listeners are able to really understand more about their own circumstances, or if they know somebody who might be dealing with something similar are able to point them in your direction and be able to find some of that community that people are really seeking and need to be able to live your lives the best that you can um, by being in this role of great responsibility to help the rest of us deal with our shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and thank you so much for having me. I think, you know, it's, 
it's not often that I get to talk to non-therapists about this stuff. And so it's really cool to be able to have a conversation with someone who's very psychologically minded and like, yay therapy, but also is really interested in receiving what it's like to be on the other side of that room, right? And so I appreciate being able to have this conversation with you. And I can't wait for it to get into people's ears because I think it's going to be really helpful. Absolutely. And honestly, I'm super stoked to get it out there because I really want to send it to my therapist. I want to be like, these are all the things that I've been thinking about that we don't I talk know, about. Right? <laughs> I, I never bring them up with you, but here you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So do with this what you will. Jenny, I appreciate you so much. And gang, that's all for this episode of Who the Fuck. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and sharing your story. And if listeners, you enjoyed our conversation and want to learn more about Jenny and her organization, Brave Providers, you can visit braveproviders.com. You can also follow Jenny and Brave Providers on Instagram and TikTok at Brave Providers. And if you want to join the Facebook community, it is the Brave Vicarious Trauma Community on Facebook. And all of this information will be in the show notes so you don't have to remember it. And we will catch you all next time. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Cast.